If I were to ask you a question, how rich are Americans on a global scale? How would you answer that question? How rich are Americans on a global scale? Some of you are, some of you are smiling. <laughs> I think we all know the answer to that question. According to an article that was written by sportofmoney.com in September of 2019, the answer is very rich. Unsurprisingly, the United States of America stands economically strong and is the richest nation on earth. We have the most millionaires and billionaires in the world. 41% of the world's millionaires are Americans. The net worth of the people in America account for 30% of global net worth. Out of 317 trillion in global wealth, the United States share is at 98 trillion. Global Finance, which is a website for global news and insight for corporate financial professionals, came out with an article written by Luca Ventura titled, The World's Richest and Poorest Countries in 2021. Luca writes, quote, If we simply consider a nation's gross domestic product, GDP, which is the sum of all goods and services produced by a country during one year, then we would have to conclude that the richest nations are exactly the ones with the largest GDP. And then he went on and listed all the richest, wealthiest nations. The United States of America was number one. China was number two. Japan was number three. And Germany was number four. I share this just to state the obvious, that the United States of America, the land in which we live, is extremely wealthy. We live in a wealthy, affluent nation. When we enter into our text this morning, we're going to see another place that is known for its wealth. And that city is called Philippi. We're going to enter the text with Luke, or excuse me, the Apostle Paul entering into the city called Philippi. Now, in order for us to understand the text, we need to know something about the city of Philippi, okay? Philippi was an important Roman colony city in what is now modern-day Greece. While the city was originally built and fortified by Philip of Macedonia in about 358 B.C. and named after him, the Philippi that Luke and Paul knew was a metropolis run on Roman principles and Roman law. Roman Emperor Octavian had not only made Philippi a Roman colony and populated it with retired Roman soldiers, but he gave the city the legal character of a part of Italy, even though it was outside of Italy. This was the highest honor that could be bestowed on a provincial city, for it meant that exemption from poll and land taxes, Colonists could purchase or sell land and engage in civil lawsuits. In short, Philippi was a mini-Rome, and Roman citizenship was highly prized in such a place. Now, besides Philippi being a highly prized place to live in, it was they observed the imperial cult, means, meaning that they worshipped the emperor there, and the city was home to the worship of many, many gods. Philippi was a wealthy city. 
The city prospered not only because it was in a very fertile region, but because there were still active mines in the area, particularly gold mines. There were also copper mines. There were also silver mines, which is one of the reasons why Philip of Macedonia wanted to take over the land. He was the father of Alexander the Great, by the way. And that's why the the city is called Philippi. Philip, the letter to the church at Philippians. In Acts 16, 14, we see an, the, an, an indication of this wealth. In Acts 16, 14, it states that a woman named Lydia, a seller of purple from the city of Thyatira, worshipped God. She became a believer there. She was a merchant dealing in purple cloth. What's the significance of dealing with purple cloth? The indication is that she works in fine cloths for the wealthy. That's why she was lived in Thyatira, moved to Philippi to do business in Philippi because it was going to be lucrative. It was a place where one could make a profit. The wealth of the area fits the latter description of the Philippian church as giving major monetary support to the Apostle Paul. This is seen in Philippians 1.5 and Philippians 4.15-18. We're not going to look at the passage, but we see that the church, uh, the wealth of the church was seen by giving Paul financial support. So I want to point out two things. Philippi was very, very wealthy, but it was also an unbelieving society for Christianity hadn't taken root there. And Paul was going there to establish Christianity in a very wealthy and unbelieving society, which is not unlike where we're living in, a wealthy, unbelieving society. The United States today and Philippi back then had some similarities. We're both wealthy, and we're currently living in a society where Christianity is waning. So this brings us to the question for the passage that we're going to be looking at. The question is, what happens when the power of God is at work through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society? What happens when God is at work powerfully through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society. Number one, when the power of God is at work through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society, God's people will often be brought before the authorities by those who are being financially impacted by the spread of the gospel. Verses 16 to 19. Now it happened as we, who's we? There's four people in the we, although... Not all of them are going to be mentioned. There is Paul, Silas, Luke, and Timothy. Luke is the author of the book of Acts, so he includes himself as part of this group. So he's the one writing the account. Now it happened, as we went to prayer, that a certain slave girl, possessed with a spirit of divination, met us, who brought her masters much profit by fortune-telling. This girl followed Paul and us, And cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. I'm going to stop right there. We see that Paul is annoyed. The question is, why is Paul annoyed? Why is he disturbed in his spirit as to what's going on here? 
we have to go back and see, I've underlined the phrase, the most high God. What does that mean, the most high God? Keep in mind, this woman is saying to Paul and the other people he was with, Paul and Silas in particular, she's following him and he's, she's saying, these are men, of, the servants of the most high God. This is a pluralistic society where many religions were being practiced. And so many people worship many different gods. And they would all use this phrase, most high God, to refer to their own God. So for an example, you're sitting here listening to me preach. We are believers in Jesus Christ. And I say to you, we all worship the most high God. Amen? Everyone agrees with that. Why do you say amen? Because you're assuming that I'm referring to Jesus Christ, who is the most high God, or the Trinity, the most high God. But if I were to say that very same statement, and this is a, and I change the context, let's say this is a multi-faith assembly. We have Muslims, we have Hindus, and we have Buddhists, and we have every representative under the sun of all the different devotees of all the religions in the world. And I stand up as a Christian pastor, and I say to you, we all worship the Most High God. What's your response? You say, I'll say amen? Well, not if you're a Christian. You're going to be sunning yourself, why is he saying that? Doesn't he know that there are people here who don't believe that Jesus is Lord? It's confusing, isn't it? It's misleading. That's what's happening here. The Apostle Paul is in a culture where many people of many different religions use this phrase to describe their God. And Paul knows that. Also, she said, who proclaimed to us the way of salvation. The article the can also be translated as a way of salvation. So in other words, it could be translated Paul was saying that she was saying, these men are the servants of the Most High God who proclaim to us a way of salvation, uh, one of many paths to salvation. That's how it can be translated. And in that context, you understand why he's annoyed. He's coming to give the good news of Jesus Christ to a society that does not know him. And they're gonna, it's going to be misleading, and they're going to misunderstand what he's trying to accomplish. And he's being annoyed, as we would be as Christians. So what does he do? He turns around and knows that the woman doing this is demonically bound. That's what's giving her the ability to fortune tell and to answer. What would happen is, this was very common in that culture. She would be demonically possessed, and she would be able to answer questions and predict the future. Like mediums today, people will go to mediums to try to find answers to their problems. And that's what she was doing, but she was making a profit for those who she was working for. So what Paul does, he turns to the woman who he knows is demonically bound. This is not a fraud. This is demonically bound who's giving her the abilities to do these things that she's doing. The demon is giving her the power to do this. So he turns around and commands the spirit to leave her. So the spirit leaves her immediately. What has just happened? The power of God is at work in a wealthy and unbelieving society. Now watch what happens, the reaction of her employers. But when her, when her master saw that their hope of profit was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to the authorities. When those 
who were exploiting this young woman for profit saw that their means of profit was cut off. They became angry and they used their status in society and dragged Paul and Silas, only those two, into to the authorities. That's what they did. And notice it's just Paul and Silas, not the other two individuals. Luke and Timothy. Why Paul and Silas, not the other two? Paul and Silas were Jewish. Luke was a Gentile. Timothy was part Jew and part Gentile. You're also seeing here a, a current of anti-Semitism in this society, in this culture. So what you see is they drag them to the marketplace. What's the marketplace? A marketplace... The ancient Greek term for this marketplace was the agora, or the agora. This was a public open space used for assemblies and markets and was the center of all civic activity. The second century marketplace, or agora, has been uncovered, and on its northwest side, there was a raised podium, or the bema, or judgment seat, with stairs on two sides leading to the seat before which civil cases would be tried. By taking Paul and Silas there, these employers of this young woman, they were either looking for compensation or revenge through the courts. That's what they were doing. The owners of this slave girl should probably be seen as persons of considerable social status in the community for it was normally only people of considerable financial wherewithal who could take the risk of going to court with the expectation of winning. So this is what happens in a wealthy, unbelieving society where God's power is at work. They will take those who are the most influential Christians, the most outspoken Christians, into to the authorities. That's what happens when God's power is at work in a wealthy, unbelieving society. And there will be a, an anti-Christian undercurrent through it all as well. This is what happened. It happened to Paul. They were taken to the authorities because God's power was at work in a wealthy, unbelieving society. Number two. When the power of God is at work through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society, God's people will often be publicly humiliated and imprisoned on false charges without due process. Verses 20 to 24. And they brought them, Paul and Silas, to the magistrates. There were two of them. Under Roman policy, when they were in a city, you had two magistrates. They were called the praetores or the duomvri, duo, two. And they brought them to the magistrates and said, These men, being Jews, exceedingly trouble our city, and they teach customs which are not lawful for us, being Romans, to receive or observe. That's not why you're bringing them there. You're bringing them there because they have affected your ability to make money. Are there people who are exploiting others for profit today? You better believe they are. In China... They're abusing young people to make profit. If I were to say what I just said in China, I would disappear. And it happens here as well. These people were exploiting a young woman for profit. They didn't like it. 
So then they bring them to the authorities, and then the reason why they're saying, the reason why they, they, the reason that they use before the authorities is because they're threatening our social cohesiveness. These Jews are a threat. It wasn't, they're not going to stand before the court and say, well, the reason why we're bringing them to court is because they've affected our ability to make money. They're not going to say that. You will never hear that in public. The real reason is not going to be stated in public. This will be the reason. Uh, ben Witherington, one of the commentators in the book of Acts, says this, Here we see the clash between pagan religion and customs and the Christian faith. Both Jews and Gentiles view the mission, Christianity, as a threat to the customs that provide social cohesion, to the religious basis of their cultures, and to the political stability through Caesar's rule. And that's what you'll hear and see in our culture today. Christians are going to be disruptive to the social cohesion and the unity that, that the world is trying to establish outside of Jesus Christ. And they will be seen and, and labeled as disruptors to the political establishment and to the political desires of those who are in power. That's what you will hear. But beneath it all will be the wealthy people of being upset because you're influencing, you're influencing or you're, you're stopping their ability from making money. That's never said here. We continue. Well, of course the multitude is going to be angry when they hear this. They like their way of life. They're patriotic Romans. Then the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates tore off Paul and Silas's clothes and commanded them to be beaten with rods. This was an act of humiliating them in public. They're humiliating them in public. This is in order to deter anyone from listening to what they had to say, and hopefully it would keep them from speaking and doing what they were doing before this event happened. It's an act of deterrence, and no one wants to be humiliated. So if you know you're going to be humiliated publicly, you're going to question whether or not, well, should I be taking this course of action? Should I say what I'm going to say, knowing that there's going to be consequences to this? So they're being publicly humiliated. In verse 23, and when they had laid many stripes on them, they threw them into prison, commanding the jailer to keep them securely. Having received such a charge, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet into stocks. Humiliated, in prison, without due process. There was no due process here. You know why I know there's no due process? Paul and Silas were Roman citizens. And if those who were in uh, these magistrates, if they had done their due diligence and did what they were supposed to do, they would have realized that these two individuals were Roman citizens, and it was illegal to do what they were doing here without due process. They're unjustly being put in prison, and we will see that going forward in our land in which we live, you're going to see God's power at work, and then you're going to see those whom God is using in a powerful way. They're going to be humiliated publicly. They're going to be thrown in prison unjustly without due process. What do I mean when I say due process? Due process is the legal requirement that the state must respect all legal rights that are owed to a person. Due process balances the power of law of the land and protects the individual person from it. 
When a government harms a person without following the exact course of the law, this constitutes a due, uh, a due process violation which offends the rule of law. That's exactly what is happening here, and we're going to see that going forward even in this land. Those who are supposed to be following the law will not do so. Possibly because, or likely because of a prejudice against anti, there'll be an anti-Christian sentiment. It's also important to note that the Roman judicial system was subject to a variety of improper influences which made equality under the law virtually unattainable in practice. When the power of God is at work through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society, God's people will often be publicly humiliated and imprisoned on false charges without due process. Number three, when the power of God is at work through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society, confinement will not keep God's people from having opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ to others. Verses 25 to 31. But at midnight... Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God while they're in prisoners, while they're in prison, and the prisoners were listening to them. Suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken, and immediately all the doors were opened, and everyone's chains were loosed. And the keeper of the prison, awaking from sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, supposing the prisoners had fled, drew his sword and was about to kill himself. Why was he doing that? He was most likely a retired Roman soldier. This was an area that was populated with retired soldiers. He's working as a correctional officer, to use our language. And he realizes that the prisoners are going to escape. And he would be regarded by his authorities as a dereliction or neglecting of his duties, of his responsibilities. So he thinks now he's going to die. Well, he doesn't want to be humiliated, so he'd rather save some face and take his own life. And in an honor-shame culture, this is what what you would have done. But Paul called with a loud voice saying, Do yourself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light, this Philippian jailer. And he ran in and fell down trembling before Paul and Silas. And he brought them out, that is Paul and Silas, and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And so they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, you and your household. Here's an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ while they were in prison and confinement. Just when you think that God's will and purpose is being hindered because those whom God is using powerfully is in prison, nope doesn't happen that way. We see that when the power of God is at work through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society, confinement will not keep God's people from having opportunities to share the good news of Jesus Christ to others. Fourthly, when the power of God is at work through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society, confinement will not keep God's people from bearing fruit and experiencing joy with others. Verses 32 to 34. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. Now when he had brought them into his house, he set food before them. And he rejoiced having believed in God with all of his household. Not only did he have these Paul and Silas have an opportunity to share the good news of Jesus Christ while they were in prison. They bore fruit 
while they were there. They were productive, and God was blessing what they were doing, even though they were confined. The enemy of the world is trying to hinder what God is doing, and he basically tried to put Paul and Silas on the sidelines. And God says, okay, you want to do that? You will try to take away my people from going out into the world and sharing the gospel with them? I'll bring these people to Paul and Silas in the prison. And that's exactly what happened. It is interesting that Jesus loved people who were in the jails, working in the jails. He had a person that belonged to him. The Philippian jailer did not know that this was that he belonged to Jesus. There was an appointed time when this Philippian jailer was going to come to faith in Jesus Christ. The Philippian jailer didn't know it yet, but there was going to be a major earthquake, a major disruption in his life that was going to make all the difference in his world. And when that earthquake happened, he, God had strategically put his own people, Paul and Silas, at the right place at the right time so that that person, the Philippian jailer, and all his family would come to faith in Jesus Christ. It is interesting that God wanted to bring Paul and Silas into the prison cell in order to save this individual. That's how God worked. Was Paul and Silas willing to pay a price and to suffer in order for the Philippian jailer to know Jesus? Once again, we see the theme of suffering and self-deprivation for the purpose of the gospel. Paul and Silas are not resisting the injustice that is due them. They just simply say, this must be God's will for my life. Maybe God is going to do something in the midst of all this, yet that I don't even know yet. You think that was Paul's perspective? I think it was. You say, how do you know that? Read what it says in Philippians 1, 12 to 14. This is the letter that he writes to the church at Philippi. He says, I want you to know, my brothers and sisters who live in the city of Philippi, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, referring to his imprisonment, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. The reason He wants to comfort the Philippian brothers and sisters, say, hey, don't be concerned that now I'm in prison. They may be saying, well, Paul's in prison now. What's going to happen to Christianity in Philippi? He says, no, no, no. Your perspective is all wrong. God's in control of my life, brothers and sisters in Philippi. And he's using my and Silas' imprisonment to further the gospel in places that would otherwise hear it. This is not a hindrance. This is God's way of advancing the gospel to places that would otherwise receive it. This is what God is doing. And not only that, Not only that, in verse 14, he says, Most of the brethren in the Lord, having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. In other words, because they see Paul is in prison, and what God is doing through Paul in prison, even though he's there unjustly, they see the fruit that Paul is bearing, and as a result, it's having an impact, not only on Paul and Silas who are in prison, but on those in the community who see what God is doing through them in prison. And as a result, it affects the Philippian believers who say, wow, I can too speak boldly without fear. Because no matter where God puts me, it's his will, and good will come of it. Once again, we see that God uses evil to do good. And this is what's happening here in Philippi. When God works powerfully through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving city, 
you can still bear fruit and experience joy. And I'm sure Paul and Silas probably said to themselves, you know something? This is worth all the suffering because now someone knows Jesus Christ who would have never done so without it. Fifthly, when the power of God is at work through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society, the innocence of God's people will often be confirmed by an official or public apology from the authorities for having violated their rights. Verses 35 to 40. And when it was day, it's interesting, this happens after the, the salvation of the Philippian jailer. Coincidence? No. God's purpose for Paul and Silas in prison is now done. It's time to come out. You're well done, good and faithful servant. I would rather not have that experience, but we don't get to say, especially in a wealthy, unbelieving society. So, when it was day, the magistrate sent the officers saying, let the men go. And you would think that the apostle Paul would say, okay, Silas, let's go. We're out. Praise God. So the keeper of the prison reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Now therefore, depart and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us openly, publicly, uncondemned Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison unjustly, and now do they put us out secretly? No way. Let them come themselves and get us out. Why does he do that? Why is he doing this? For his own personal reasons? No. Paul's heart is always about furthering the gospel of Jesus Christ wherever he was. And he knows that if he goes out privately, everyone in the city of Philippi will think that these people are actually guilty for what they did. Paul was not guilty for anything. He did nothing wrong. If there was any injustice, it was those who were in authority didn't, do due pro didn't uh, execute due process. They were the unjust ones. And now you just want to let us go privately as if we somehow did something wrong? Their, their remaining silent would have somehow tacitly, uh, they would have, it, would have, it would have basically said in an unspoken way that we're guilty, and they were not. If they were to leave secretly, it would affect Christianity in Philippi. What happens when Paul and Silas leave and they're considered guilty by society? Anyone who decides to be a Christian in Philippi will have to go through what they did. And they're going to be persecuted and they're going to be thrown in prison and they won't experience due process. Paul is not only thinking about his, his own personal well-being, but he's thinking about others who may believe in Jesus Christ in Philippi after him. And he wants to make sure that everyone knows that Christians are innocent when they live faithfully before God in a wealthy, unbelieving society. He says, no way. You want me to come out of prison? You tell the authorities to come out here and you bring them and have them escort me out. And interesting, now he reveals to the, everyone that they're Roman citizens. It was illegal to do to Paul and Silas what happened to them as Roman citizens. Well, the officers told these words to the magistrates, and they were afraid when they heard that they were Romans. Then they came and pleaded with them and brought them out 
publicly and asked them to depart from the city. And so when they went out of the prison, they entered the house of Lydia, and when they had seen the brethren, they encouraged them, and they departed. The fact that the magistrates escorted Paul and Silas out publicly was a way of saying, Paul and Silas are innocent of doing anything wrong. And what that would have done was to make sure that any magistrate from that point on, when they receive two people, three people, an individual, in a similar situation like Paul and Silas, the magistrates better do their due diligence because they would get in big time trouble from the authorities in Rome if they are found out they're not executing Roman law the way they should be. Paul is very shrewd and he cared about those who were going to become believers in Jesus in Philippi. Here we see that when the authority, when, when God's people is working in a very powerful way in a, through his people in a wealthy, unbelieving society, the innocence of God's people will be confirmed when the authorities make a public apology for violating their rights. Now, we may not see actual leaders today making a public apology. You may see them do, uh, you, you may, they may give a, a private apology to people that they have offended and violated their rights with. The translation, uh, some, some translations say they, he apologized. Others say that they appealed, he, they appeased. But we're going to see at some point when God's people are wrongly treated by the law, that somehow their, their innocence will be confirmed by those in positions of authority to show that they are innocent. And when Christians are following the Holy Spirit, they should be innocent. And this is important what Paul is doing. And what's interesting, too, is that he then goes to the house of Lydia and he encourages the church. He encourages them after being humiliated, imprisoned, because of his faith in Jesus Christ. And that's going to happen today, brothers and sisters. Those who are the loudest, or the loudest, those who have the, a voice, those who are influential leaders are going to experience this. I believe that with every fiber of my being. And so the, God's word is telling us, be ready for this. Be ready for this. You can be encouraged in the midst of it because God is still at work in the midst of it. On a balmy October afternoon in 1982, Badger Stadium in Madison, Wisconsin was packed. More than 60,000 diehard University of Wisconsin supporters were watching their football team take on the Michigan State Spartans. It soon became obvious that MSU had the better team. What seemed odd, however, as the score became more lopsided, were the bursts of applause and shouts of joy from the Wisconsin fans. How could they cheer when their team was losing? It turns out that 70 miles away, the Milwaukee Brewers were beating the St. Louis Cardinals in Game 3 of the 1982 World Series. Many of the fans in the stands were listening to portable radios and responding to some other, something other than their immediate circumstances. Paul encourages us as he encouraged the house of Lydia to fix our eyes not on what we see, but what is unseen. And when we do, we can rejoice even in the hardships because we see Christ's larger victory. We're going to see some, here's some difficult things in our land 
in the months and years ahead. But we need to have the proper perspective as Paul, as Paul had. And when we do, we can have peace and assurance and comfort that though it may be at times, it may appear that God is not working, he is working. He is sovereign. As he was working through the Apostle Paul in this wealthy, unbelieving society, that same God who worked then is the same God who will be and is working today in our own land. Isn't that true? Amen? Would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. Uh, Lord, we do recognize the society, the culture in which we live. And we see the Bible this way. We really see that there's, there's not much difference between the ancient city of Philippi and the society and the culture in which we live. And some of the things that we hear and the things that we read may not be pleasant. It tells the church that there's going to be hardship. The Bible tells us there will be hardship. There will be difficulty. There will be challenges. There will be suffering. To say anything other than that would be unfaithful and not true to your word. But in spite of these things, Lord, we know that you are sovereign. And we saw how you sovereignly worked through the Apostle Paul and Silas who were faithful to you in the society and the culture in which they lived. May we call to mind this story when we see the things and hear about the things that we will see and hear in our own land in the future. May we always be comforted to know that you are sovereign and at work. And even though things may look like you're not working, we are encouraged by the fact that we don't always go by what we see. We live by what we know to be true because of your word. And help us to be faithful to that, to believe it, and live in such a way that it is true. Father, we thank you for your word. We love you. We thank you that you're alive. And we just ask that you would give us the strength that we need for every single day, no matter what we go through and what we're experiencing, either now in the present or will be in the future. And we will give you all the glory and the praise when you do so. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let us please stand for our closing song, Facing a Task Unfinished. Please stand if you are able.
Please stand for the benediction. Uh, before I do that, we we're just going to pray very quickly for the food that we're about to receive. So would you please pray with me? Father, we thank you for uh, this day and for the opportunity to worship you. And we just pray that it was acceptable in your sight. And Father, we thank you for the time of fellowship and for the food that we're about to receive and all those who have prepared uh, the various uh, uh, foods that are, we're going to be eating this afternoon. We ask that you would bless the, the, the food and May it nourish our bodies so that we may glorify you with them. So with that, Lord, we just thank you for all of the good gifts that you give to us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now receive the benediction. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you all peace. In Jesus' holy name we pray, amen. Go in peace.